Let me tell you a story. Podcast number 101. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We have a great guest interview for you today with Paul Rainer, a new friend who writes humorous science fiction. We'll talk more about his books later in the podcast. In the meantime, I'll finish reading Chapter 32 of Winds of Wyoming. The story picks up in the middle of a parade, a Fourth of July parade, and the villain, Ramsey, is watching the parade through a window. Ramsey was about to return to the basement when the band he'd heard earlier began to play again. The tune was catchy a song from his childhood. He reached behind the blind to open the window. The smell of horse dung wafted in as the cab of a truck with a Highway Haven House of God sign on the door came into view. He tried to remember why that name rang morning bells in his head. The music grew louder. The bed of the truck slowly appeared. America, they sang, God shed. He pulled a slat down and saw a drummer bouncing with the beat than a guitar player. Wasn't that the Duncan guy? And crown thy good, they sang. Then two women, a blonde standing before a microphone and a dark-haired singer seated in a chair, wearing sunglasses and holding a microphone. From sea to... He admitted a startled oath. Nielsen. But Hughes said she was in jail. A swarm of celebrants watched the band from the sidewalk, yet Kate sensed a solitary stare. She studied the crowd while the instrumentalist retuned. No one stared back. She adjusted her sunglasses. Movement in a blind-covered window directly across from her caught her attention. She squinted at the window as they slowly rolled past the store. She checked the name over the door. Copper Fever Gift Shop. Tara's Store. Stop! The high-pitched shriek silenced the crowd. Arrest that woman. She's an escaped convict. Kate's stomach lurched. Tara stood below her, pointing a long red fingernail at her chest, stabbing her heart with its poison tip. What is that fool woman doing now? Jerry Ramsey shoved the window higher to hear what she was saying, then moved to the side and pulled the blinds away from the glass for a better angle. Tara stood in the middle of the street, waving her arms and yelling. A deputy with a two-way radio at his mouth stepped into the street and motioned for the truck to stop. Within moments, excited spectators swarmed from all directions. Kate felt blood rush to her face. She'd feared this moment from the day she arrived in Copperville. Of course, it would be Tara who revealed her secret to the community and ruined the few friendships she had. She clutched the chair arms, options pummeling her brain as Tara ranted on the street below her. Arrest her! Arrest Nielsen! Now! 
She could sit and wait to be arrested or fight and scream and say it was a lie. Or she could run. Kate started to rise but stopped, even if she somehow evaded the officer's position at both ends of the truck now, hands on their holsters. She'd never make it past the curious citizens who surrounded them. The futility of her situation underscored her fatigue. She was tired, oh, so tired, of running. If she had to spend the rest of her life behind bars, surely God would give her the strength to endure. Microphone in one hand, Kate reached for a crutch with the other and pulled herself up and out of the chair. Help me, God. She lifted the microphone to her mouth. Stop her! Tara motioned to the crowd. Somebody stop her! Dimple, who now stood directly below Kate, bowed her head, her gnarled hands before her, palms up. Kate smiled. Dear, faithful Dimple. She was keeping her promise to stand by her statue. The crowd quieted. Tara grabbed the arm of the nearest officer. He yanked it away. Kate spoke into the microphone. She's right. The onlookers gasped. A smirk of victory spread across Tara's face. I have spent time in prison. Kate shifted her weight for better balance. But I am not an escaped convict. I was released six months ago after serving a five-year sentence at Patterson State Penitentiary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Some listeners tilted their heads as if trying hard to hear every word. Others folded their arms. I've committed numerous crimes, including theft. She heard her amplified words echo between the buildings. And yes, I took money from the Whispering Pines Ranch. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw Mike stiffen. Tara's eyes widened. Dimple's hands clenched. Kate was sorry she hadn't told Dimple the entire truth earlier. How knowing she had easy access to cash, possibly lots of it, had eaten at her until she'd used her key to sneak into the office late at night. I'm ashamed I stole the money. She paused. But the truth is, I put it back a few hours later, without opening the envelope to count it. I kept remembering the sweet little lady who told me to live my dream. She looked down at Dimple. Reverting to a criminal lifestyle was not my dream. Neither was returning to prison. Tara clasped her hands on her hips and began to tap the toe of her boot. Her face nearly as red as her skimpy top. She looked ready to explode. Before Tara could scream another accusation, Kate continued. I've done a host of other terrible things that did not result in incarceration. The worst, she hesitated. The crowd held its collective breath. The worst thing I ever did was... She took a long breath, shoulders rising as she did. I aborted my baby. She heard soft moans from women in the crowd. Tara screamed, Shut up! Fletcher jumped out of the Whispering Pines truck, stepped behind Tara, and clamped his hand across her mouth. Her hat fell to the ground. A murmur of approval followed his impulsive action, and a wave of expectant faces again turned toward Kate. Pastor Chuck climbed out of their truck to stand beside Dimple. He offered Kate a nod. She went on. I cannot resurrect my baby from the grave. She swallowed, choked by a grief she'd never before experienced. 
But I confessed my crimes, including the abortion, to God, and I accepted his gift of salvation while I was in prison. He's forgiven me for all the wrong things I've done. Someday, I'll meet my child in heaven and be with him or her forever. Yes, Lord, Dimple punched the air with her bony fist. I came to Wyoming, Kate said, to forget my past and start a new life. But now I realize God is the one who renews my heart and my head, not my environment. Yes, yes, Dimple lifted her other fist high. I am who I am because of where life has taken me. Kate looked from face to face. When I first came to Copperville, I chose to hide my past. But now I choose to embrace all of life, my past, my present, and my future, and grow into the woman God wants me to be. Below her, Dimple's fists opened and her fingers began to dance. Ouch! A male voice hollered. She bit me! Glad to have with us Paul Bregner, an author, a speaker, well, many other things. We'll get there. <laughs> and we're going to ask Paul a few questions here. Let's start with, how did you become a writer? Well, first off, thanks for having me today. It's, it's great to be here on this podcast. Yeah, so to answer the first question, how did I start how did I get to be a writer? Is that where we're going? Okay. Um, I have been writing pretty much since I was a kid. It's always been something I did for fun, kind of like a hobby, you know, like anything else. You know, I might go out skateboarding. I might go in and write. It's kind of that sort of thing where I just had fun doing it. It wasn't really until I got into college where I actually started to think, hey, maybe Maybe I should be a little more serious about this. Maybe it's not just a hobby. Maybe this is something that could turn into, you know, a job, a career even. I was never one of those people that kind of from an early age says, I, I knew one day I wanted to be a writer. You know, it was nothing, nothing like that. But, um, but as I got older and I did it more, I really kind of started to see, I guess, the power in it. Because I would, I would read books and I would watch movies and I would just, I would sometimes be so blown away by just the emotional impact and the the mental impact a book can make. I, I still remember when I was in junior high, I read The Hobbit. And I, I still remember, I, I, it's so funny when I started it, I was, this is sort of an aside story, but I was late to school. I remember my mom drove me to school at junior high one day and I was late and they had this policy in place where if you're late, you kind of have to stay in the principal's office until your next class start because they had like different, you know, classes, your English, your math, you know, it was all broken up like high school. And so I remember I went into the office and I was sitting there and they didn't really have anything for me to do, but wait. So I just broke out The Hobbit and I hadn't read it yet. It was just assigned to us in English class. And I still remember opening to that very first chapter and just getting so lost in the pages and just, and all I remember is starting to read and then all of a sudden the next thing you know the bell's ringing and it's like i'm coming up from the ocean and breathing air and going whoa where am i like i was so i was so lost within the pages of this story it was incredible it was such an immersive experience and i never forgot it it was one of those things that was sort of like an eye-opening moment where it's like wow you know 
writing can be so powerful. So a lot of those things along the way to kind of steer me towards considering it in a more thoughtful, serious manner. So in college, I started writing screenplays. And then uh, I remember I was I went to a writing conference one year because I heard there was this going to be the screenwriter was going to be there that had optioned a couple of her her screenplays. And I had just written the screenplay and I went up to her after class and I was all excited. I'm like, hey, can you look at my screenplay? Can you maybe give me some advice? And it was a fantasy screenplay. And she kind of read it over and she was very polite. And she she goes, okay, well, do you know anyone that knows your story, this this fantasy story? I'm like, no, no, it's brand new. It's great. It's It's all unique and different. And she goes, okay, well, so if you're going to take this to a Hollywood production company, they're going to have to spend like 50 million or more dollars trying to create the, you know, special effects wizardry that's required to make a fantasy movie. And if you have nobody that knows this, like no fans already, uh, that's going to be a hard sell. You know, usually for something like the Lord of the Rings, it's a built-in audience for even Narnia all those books, there's a built-in audience. The people that grew up loving the books, they're ready to see the movie. They're ready to pay, stand in line and buy a ticket and, and pay money to see it. But if, you, if you're an unknown, you know, chances are a production company isn't going to take that much of a financial gamble. So she gave me a great bit of advice. She goes, have you ever thought of turning this into a novel? And I thought, well, hmm, I've never written a novel. I, I suppose I could try that, which I did. I converted it into a novel because in her words, she goes... A, a publisher is far more willing to spend thousands of dollars to get your book out there than a production company would to spend tens of millions of dollars to get your unknown movie out there. So it just was a far more logical, reasonable way to go. And I also found out once I started writing novels, it was the thing I enjoyed far more anyways, because I could expand on the characters, I could expand upon the, the story idea, um, I could really delve deeper into the story that was brewing in my head and take my time with it and not be bound to like the screenplay limitation of 120 words or 120 pages or less um, to fit it within that, you know, two hour time frame. So it was a very freeing experience. And I've been writing novels ever since and, you know, which led to a, a three book deal, in, uh, which is a science fiction series that I've just completed, and it's called Space Drifters, and that's through Enclave Publishing. So it sounds like you have no interest in going back to screenplays unless you have some, some little story or something you're going to work on later on. Well, screenplays are always fun. I, I did have a blast. I wrote four of them, and I'm still very intrigued with movies and, and how much they're able to accomplish within a short time span of a couple hours or maybe even an hour and a half in some instances. But I think for me, it's just, it's all about story. I love story in its many different formats. I, I definitely wouldn't cut that option off. I think screenplays would always be something I'd be interested in, in still pursuing at some point because it's still, it still comes down to telling a good story. But I just, I think where I'm at now, I, I feel very comfortable with the, how a novel is written and just how you can really kind of simmer in the details of the story. But yeah, again, yeah, I, I'm, I'm never closing anything off. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Often we hear people who, well, writers who have spent a lot of time usually writing something, but they, they kind of hesitate or stop at some point and 
don't want to go to a be part of a writer's uh, what do you call it, a critique group. Hmm. But I noticed on your webpage or somewhere online you had uh, that you kind of have an opinion about <laughs> critique groups. What do you have to say to that writer who just doesn't want to or is stuck? Yeah, well, I think in as far as my experience goes, I've I've found critique groups to be invaluable. I mean, I just I've been in a critique group for about the last eight years with the same group of people, other aspiring writers, and they're just it's so great to have another writing professional out there that can give you good, honest feedback on your work. I mean, it's one thing to you know, show your work to your mom or, you know, your best friend. And they'll say like, hey, this is awesome. This is really good. Good job. Keep going. Which is all great. You know, you, you, that kind of encouragement is always good. But to have a group of other professionals that are pursuing the craft of writing, because there's, there's, it's not merely having this great idea. It's to be able to craft your idea and using the elements of story structure in a way that can most effectively communicate your story idea. And you need other writers, other people pursuing that professionally to to guide you along that path, especially if you're new. I think it's, it's again, like I said, it's invaluable to, to get that kind of feedback on your work. And plus, even if you know structure really well and, and you know, you've written a lot of books, you get so caught up in your own story that sometimes you lose that objectivity. So to have an objective view to come in and say, oh, I don't understand what you're trying to say here, or who's this character? He comes off really kind of creepy. <laughs> and you're like, wait, no, that's supposed to be the hero. He's not supposed to be creepy. So, you know, anything like that where they can come in and kind of give you that great advice that that might not be sort of in, it's things that can be in your blind spot. You need other people to come in and help you with those things. And the other, the only, the last thing I would say about critique group is try to find a group of people that you can really kind of gel with and people that will be honest, but not mean, because <laughs> you don't want to be in a critique group where people are constantly breaking you down and tearing you up, but constructive criticism. I mean, they call it a critique group, but you want constructive critique. You don't want just negativity or else you'll just be discouraged and you never want to write. You want those people that be honest, but also kind and fair, you know, and just not to just say, oh, this doesn't work. I don't like it. But to say, you know, what could make this more powerful if you did it this way or consider doing this or just all different kinds of brainstorming and, and uh, different creative ways of looking at telling your story that can that can help elevate it to a new level. And um, so not only that, find a good group of people like that and find people that understand your genre. You know, you're not going, if you're writing science fiction and you're in a group of romance writers, it's probably not going to work so well. You know, it's it's just going to be people are reading different things and they might not, but you know, it could be romance writers that also read science fiction. So that could work. I'm not saying it, it can't, but it's, it's usually good if they're understanding the genre that you're writing in and vice versa. So you can give good advice with their genre if you can understand that and uh, that we can sort of give them the good advice that would come from their potential readers. And it's just, it, it, it makes for a good overall experience for all of you and it elevates your writing in general. So yeah, I, I definitely recommend critique groups. Your web bio says you're a recovering surfer. <laughs> They say that a recovering alcoholic should cross the street if he sees he's walking toward a bar. What do you do if you see an ocean coming? <laughs> That's why I moved to Idaho. <laughs> no oceans. Um, no, I, I, uh, 
I did a fair amount of surfing when I was younger. It was a, I, I lived close to the beach. I was in Southern California. Uh, I was born and raised there. And, uh, you know, being that close to the beach, you're just, that's kind of one of the activities you do, especially as a teen. You go to the beach and you hang out. And I didn't want to just hang out. I wanted to go be active and do something. So I got into surfing. It was, it was a blast. It was awesome. But, you know, as you get older, uh, you don't bounce back as quick. And, and also, I don't know, I developed a weird fear of sharks. I don't know where that come from. I probably shouldn't have watched Jaws. I don't know what it was. But uh, <laughs> it just, uh, you know, it started to fade and I started to do it less and less. And you get busy, you know, I, um, I'm married with kids now and other priorities kind of take the place. So really, when I have free time now, I, I spend it with them or or honestly, you know, living here in, um, in, in Idaho now, uh, we find ways of getting out in nature in other ways. One of the great things about surfing was those calm days when you're out in the ocean and everything's peaceful and you're just kind of like sort of that one with nature kind of moment where you can just kind of just bask in that and relax and it brings a certain set of peace and, you know, it can be very spiritual too. It could be a great connection with God. And and I always found that there out in the ocean and, and I can find it in, you know, taking a nature walk, whatever it is. So really just, I think it comes down to being out in nature and having that connection and kind of getting away from the crazy busyness of life for a while and just, um, you know, getting back to that sense of peace and calm. It's a, it's a great recharge. So yeah, that's where I'm at now. Southern California to Idaho. That's quite a jump. What happened? Well, I tell you, um, like I said, I was born and raised in Southern California. I think things just started to get really expensive. <laughs> it's a very expensive place to live. And to be honest, it kind of got, it started to get a little crowded for me. And we vacationed up in the Meridian Boise area and our family just loved it. I mean, we, we just really, um, we enjoyed it. It was a little bit of a slower pace and a little bit more space, a little less people, more affordable, and just getting a little bit closer to nature. I was living, we were living in an area of Orange County where it was just basically buildings and houses and just to be able to be close to, you know, beautiful trees and, and rivers and, you know, the chance to get out into nature even just ride bikes down a nature path, take a take a hike somewhere. It's just it's that sense of peace and calm that we were we were kind of lacking for a while. So it's nice to to experience that again and and just like I said, affordable way of life. I mean, things can be pretty stressful if you're constantly like fighting against paying your bills and you know, go, go, go. It's just, it can be stressful way of life. So we kind of wanted a a little bit more of a, of a relaxing way of life. And, um, so far we found it and we, we really enjoy it here and we get seasons here. (laughs) (laughs) Southern California is like summer all year long. So it's kind of nice to have, you know, fall and winter and see actual snow. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we really love it here. Don't tell people that they'll all move here. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're a drummer. Are you going to write a book about a space drummer? Oh, that's a great story. Wait, <laughs> let me write that down. I'm going to steal that. Um, boy, wait, my mind is kind of thinking about something right now. That could be something. A, a spaceship powered with drumming, <laughs> drumming energy. Um, I'll have to think about that. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, the, I love music. And I just, uh, I think when I was young, my mom tried to get me to take piano lessons and I never had the patience. So just banging on stuff was a lot easier for me. And I think, so I took to drums uh, fairly early and I just always love rhythm and the groove of the song. 
And now recently I've been taking up a little more guitar because, you know, it's hard to play drums quietly unless you have a soundproof room. And I used to have that, but not anymore. So really for me, it's just music and being involved somehow in playing music and creating. It's just another creative outlet, just like writing. It's just a way of expressing yourself in an artistic manner. And music is just one of those ways that I, I've always kind of gravitated toward, whether it's listening to music or playing it. It's just like writing, whether I'm reading a book or writing, it's just tapping into that, that creative center inside you to just that it's waiting to, to, to create and explore art. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Your bio says you're a technology junkie, drone pilot, photographer, web designer, drummer, Star Wars nerd, recovering surfer, coffee snob, and a wannabe Narnian with a fascination for all things futuristic. Whoa. Well, looking at that, what do you do with all your spare time? <laughs> I write. <laughs> writing takes so much time. I, if I have free time, I'm, I'm usually writing. I, um, all those things are fun. I mean, a lot of those have to do with sort of the, the geeky artistic culture, whether it's science fiction or fantasy or whatever. It's, you know, it's kind of stuff I grew up enjoying, whether it's Narnia or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. It's the kind of stories that when I grew up, these are the stories that just really kind of blew my mind and expanded my imagination and just started, helped start me on the path towards wanting to create my own stories and share them with others. So um, yeah, all those things are just, they all feed into the same pursuit to want to tell stories and enjoy stories and sort of revel in that I mean, I think the the speculative fiction genre of stories, which is like anything from fantasy to sci-fi to paranormal, whatever it is, it really allows your imagination to have sort of no limits. You know, it's it's you know whether you introduce magic or 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 um, advanced technology or you know whatever it might be to sort of you know just think spaceships that can travel across the galaxy that alone just sets my mind loose you know it's like oh wow you what could happen on all these planets you never know you could just kind of invent whatever and you're inventing cultures and languages and technology and it's sort of like never ending and that's what i love about it it's just like it's letting your imagination free reign to just invent and, and create why don't you tell us a little bit about your series but no spoilers just tell us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um, the science fiction uh, trilogy that it, I'm just finishing up, the, the third book has just been released, um, and it's called Space Drifters. The first book is called Space Drifters, The Emerald Enigma. Uh, the second one is The Iron Gauntlet, and the third one is uh, that is just released is called The Ghost Ship. So Space Drifters is the main title for the series, and then they all have those little subtitles. But it basically started out as, and the way I pitched it initially was, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in space. It's like there's a there's sort of a um, a wannabe Han Solo character, and he's the captain, and he is down on his luck, and he really wants to turn things around, and so he pins basically his whole future on finding this object of legend, and it's called the Emerald Enigma, and supposedly. Uh, it will grant the bearer uh, unlimited good luck, good fortune with their life. So um, he basically goes after it, and he finds his arch nemesis is on the same quest to find it. 
so it kind of has that whole Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of feel. And it was absolutely a blast to write. And it's just sort of, um, it's people have compared it to kind of a Guardians of the Galaxy style where it's it's sci-fi, but it's kind of lighthearted and there's humor involved, but there's also the fun adventure and the excitement of that, just like kind of a Guardians of the Galaxy kind of kind of story and feel and vibe. But yeah, it's it's been incredible. And like I said, the last book has just been released, The Ghost Ship. And you can find those on Amazon if you just search Space Drifters, that it'll come right up. But uh, And that's been published through uh, Enclave Publishing. And you can find them online too. Just type Enclave Publishing in Google. And they've got a lot of great other authors out there with a lot of speculative fiction. So if you're into the speculative fiction genre, it's a great place to find a lot of good stories, a lot of good books. I've never thought of Star Wars as being a comedy. <laughs> How do you make space fights and dangerous cosmic exploits funny? Yeah, well, uh, it's funny because, um, you know, when I first saw Star Wars, there was there was so many funny moments. And I was used to, I think I was used to seeing things in a far more serious light depicted like sometimes I would see science fiction and I, I believe now the terminology would be called hard science fiction where everything was serious and it was all technical and and you had to treat everything with such scientific plausibility and then all of a sudden Star Wars comes out and you got like lightsabers and these big lightsaber battles and you know you don't even need a technical explanation it's just like hey that's cool yeah it's a it's a lightsaber battle let's go for it and i just like that sense of fun and that sense of just exploring the imagination and showing new technology and you know exploring aliens from other planet and what their civilizations might be like and the different way that they handle circumstances as opposed to just what we're used to and really it was just i mean if you want if it when it comes right down to it it's basically just the Wild West in space, I think, is a lot of... That's the style of science fiction that Star Wars is. That's what mine is. It's really just Wild West in space. You know, your laser blaster is just your six-shooter, and you're going from town to town, except now it's planet to planet. So it's that same genre and feel. In fact, I believe the genre is called space opera, like they used to call the old Westerns horse opera, I think. So they kind of took it from there. But yeah, it's 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 that more lighthearted way of looking at science fiction. And the comedy comes in where, I mean, even in Star Wars, they, you had the comic relief, which was the droid, C-3PO and R2-D2. They were always providing comic relief. They're always worried about every situation and going, oh, no, I'm going to melt. And all those kind of funny things where they would just, um, they would take a stressful situation and introduce humor to kind of lighten the mood and kind of give you that relief, that comic relief, as they call it. And and I always loved that. It was so much fun to me because you could have the adventure and the comedy. And so that's sort of what I went about trying to capture. And there's a lot of other great examples out there now, too. You have you know, movies like Galaxy Quest or Men in Black, where it takes that, that science fiction-y feel, but it introduces comedy and the lighthearted fun where you're taking a genre that you already love, but you're introducing a fun approach to it and laughs along the way. And uh, it's great for me. It's like the best of both worlds. <laughs> That's great. So after that, I can't wait to hear some. Okay. Um, this is, like I said, this is the first book in the science fiction series, Space Drifters. And this first book, the subtitle is The Emerald Enigma. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and start right here with chapter one. Waking up to a fleet of Zormian star pirates surrounding my ship was yet another reminder that my life was not going as planned. 
This ship is loaded with thermal plasma canisters. You nail us with a photon cannon, and it's lights out for all of us. I glared up at the viewing screen and leaned forward in the captain's chair, trying to appear threatening. Lies! We ran a thorough scan of your freighter. There wasn't a trace of thermal plasma. The Zormian slug captain's generous puke-green torso folded over tight black stretchy pants in a hideous disregard for fashion. Though, to be fair, his velvet collar had style. They're coated in Vanthus cocoon slime. They can't be scanned. Impossible. Space trash like you can't afford Vanthus slime. It was a gift, I said. Okay, I admit it was a weak story. I'd just woken up five freems ago, and I was still groggy. I'd barely had time to step into my boots, grab my holster, and throw on my lucky silver shirt and black candrillion hide jacket. It wasn't until I made it to the bridge that I realized I hadn't changed my red checkered pajama pants. Not exactly the intimidating presence the captain of a starship hopes for. Whispering gurgles and mutters trailed over the subspace intercom. I took personal satisfaction that one of my lamest bluffs ever had prompted enough doubt for a hushed conference. Though, admittedly, Zormians aren't very bright. The bridge doors opened with a chirp, and Blix came strolling in, sinking his twin rows of sharp teeth into a golden spice pair. The overhead lights gleamed off his shiny copper scales. A brown bandolier filled with small daggers crisscrossed his brawny torso, and charcoal pants fit snugly over his muscular reptilian legs. Where have you been? I hissed through gritted teeth. I was hungry. Blix joined me at the captain's chair and looked at this viewing screen. Zormians, huh? Pfft, savage creatures. I shot him an angry look and put a finger to my lips. We'd like to see the thermal canisters, if you don't mind. The Zormian captain's voice crackled over the antiquated intercom. My shoulders sank, and my black jacket creaked against the chair, bested by a Zormian. This was a dark day in the life of Glint Starcrossed. I scratched at the three-day-old scruff on my cheek, wondering if this was the end of things. Thermal canisters? Blix arched a scaly brow and grinned. His yellow eyes swirled with an orange smoke as his slivered pupils narrowed. He was taking delight in my misery. My life had taken some bad turns lately. The services of a star pilot, skilled as I was, were just not in demand these days. As such, I had taken to whatever odd jobs would keep me from going broke. This, of course, took me through some rather seedy star systems, teeming with the worst interstellar riffraff the universe had to offer. Run-ins with space trash like the Zormians was now my lot in life. My mind raced for a way out of this mess. And then, inspiration hit. Did you say we? Um, yes. I mean, what? The Zormian was flustered. Well, I just thought it was strange you said we want to see the canisters. I thought you said you were the captain. No, not we, me. You must show them to me, the slug captain demanded. Okay, it's just that you said we like someone else was in charge over there. Are you sure you're the one I should be talking to? Messing with Zormian egos was a dangerous game, but what choice did I have? I simply meant, that is, I took counsel, that is all. I am in charge. Green ooze was dripping from his antenna and flowing into his seven bloodshot eyes. He was clearly upset. His gelatinous body rippled as he looked around in a rage. Behind him, a stout, pot-bellied Zormian was trying to fade into the shadows. No doubt he was the clever counselor working on a plan to steal leadership away from the current slug captain. It was a typical Zormian power grab, so far be it for me not to call attention to him. Is that him? I pointed to the retreating counselor. Is that the real Zormian leader calling the shots here? The slug captain spun, all eight laser cannons drawn in a flash. The counselor drew his own cannons, and they faced each other for a tense moment. Zormians aren't big on peace negotiations, but just in case, I thought I should speak up. Fire! 
They both unloaded their cannons, and a myriad of red beams danced across the screen. Chaos. Smoke. Gurgled screams. Finally, the visual went black. I exhaled and shook my arms to release the tension. Blix shook his head. I can't believe that actually worked. Computer, switch to space view, I said. The screen remained black. After a moment, a female voice came over the ship communicator. She sounded upset. A good morning might be nice. Yes, right. Good morning, computer. Switch to space view. You know I prefer Iris. It's so much more personal. About a century ago, a group of meddlesome programmers thought it would be a great idea to add personalities to artificial life. The machines, realizing they were outfitted with emotion but lacked the basic human senses, became disillusioned. Some turned unresponsive. Others shut off completely. The remaining machines developed unhealthy personality traits. Iris is passive-aggressive. Sometimes technological advances take you back a few steps. Of course, Iris. Now, how about that space view, pretty please? I tried to mask the frustration. Any outburst could send her weeping into the circuitry. Yes, of course, Captain. Or should I call you Glint? Iris said. We've already had this discussion, Iris. Iris sighed. Oh, very well, Captain. A warbled blip sounded. The screen flashed to life and the grand blackness of space filled the screens. A vast choir of stars blinking behind three Zormian pirate vessels clustered in type formation. Small red explosions dimpled the largest ship in the middle. It started drifting toward the nearest vessel. And you say you're unlucky, Blix said. I woke up to a hostile fleet of Zormians. You call that good luck? Blix shrugged. You know, when I dreamt this, there were ten of them. I slammed my fist on the armrest. It hurt. Sometimes I wonder why I do that. Why can't you dream about wild fortunes or a relaxing vacation on the orange sands of Zeriphides 12? Preposterous. It's obviously beyond my control what thoughts emerge. Blix leaned against the half-circle railing beside my chair. He took another bite of his pear and smirked. But I must admit, it is wildly entertaining to watch you scramble. And look at the glorious results. Blix motioned to the screen. The main Zormian ship exploded in a huge ball of fire, starting a chain reaction that set the whole fleet ablaze. And they say words can never hurt you. Well done, Captain Starcrossed. Blix placed his arm over his chest and gave a theatrical bow. I grumbled my disapproval. Yeah, no thanks to you. How about some advice for my second-in-command during a crisis? Blix narrowed his eyes. His reptilian features turned menacing. If I didn't know his aversion to battle, I would have been intimidated. I don't like hostile confrontations. Blix lifted his chin in the air as if smelling something rotten. Well, then what good are you? Such hostility. You haven't had your morning velrus, have you? No, as a matter of fact, I haven't. Well, that would explain your pants. Never mind all that. You got the charts for Berienfeld Galaxy yet? Blix paused for a moment. His cheek twitched, the telltale sign of his guilt. <clears throat> yes, uh, not to worry. I'll have them well in hand. Blix, I need those today. I'm running out of chances here. I stood running a hand through my coarse, dark hair. Too many close calls lately left me feeling desperate. Such dramatics. You don't even know if it's there. It's my best shot, and once I have it, no more star pirates, bounty hunters, or space trash of any kind will ever hassle me again. Blix rubbed his chin, then cast a patronizing glance my way. You're pinning quite a bit on a legend, you know. The Emerald Enigma is real. I know it. Blix sighed. Yeah, yes, of course. He retrieved a palm-sized black communicator holstered on his hip. He pressed a button and the device sprang to life, expanding into a luminescent blue rectangle with a translucent touchscreen. He tapped an animated icon of a scenic view. 
and aimed the rectangle toward the burning ships on the viewing screen. What are you doing? I said. I'm getting a visual of this for my Spacebook profile grid. It's magnificent in a tragic sort of way. All the Uniweb can see that. You'll compromise the security of my ship. Well, I do have a life outside this ship. Blix tapped the screen and the device collapsed. He returned it to his hip, his face all pouty. It's not like we're on some big secret mission. I've got a bounty on my head. Blix huffed out a mocking laugh. Yeah, <laughs> 100 vibes? No one's going to waste their time for that paltry amount. Get off the Uniweb, got it? Captain, Vithians are very social creatures. You don't know what you're asking. I folded my arms and shot him my best disapproving captain stare. And what of my blossoming romance with Vithgirl755? It's so hard to find quality Vithian women these days. Delete the profile. That's an order. Blix leaned toward me, a concerned look on his face. You seem more on edge than usual. Are you getting enough sleep? His sleeping patterns are very irregular, Iris chimed in before I had time to respond. I've been monitoring a troubling upswing in stress-related behavior. I tried to suppress my building rage so as not to prove their point. I didn't authorize monitoring my sleep patterns. It's standard protocol, Iris said. Unhealthy patterns of crew members must be documented and reported. Blix nodded and motioned to me as if I was supposed to agree. Well, stop it, I said. I'm fine. Blix shook his head. Denial. So typical. Listen, I think I know what this is about. Blix moved closer and patted me on the shoulder like he was my father. You've been forced to grow up too fast. Fending for yourself at an early age, developing that cold exterior of yours to protect the wounded child inside. It's textbook human behavior. I glared and pointed a threatening finger at him. I told you never to psychoanalyze me. I completely understand, Blix put his hands to his chest in a gesture of sincerity. I too lost my parents at an early age. I frowned. You were 107 gloons old. I was 12. You don't understand a thing. Yes, but in Vithian terms, I was a mere youth. I waved my arms in frustration, as if swatting his words away like insects. Okay, new ship rule. No analyzing me, watching me, or even looking at me. Got it? Blick spread wide his muscular arms. Sounds like somebody needs a hug. I took a few steps back. Stay away from me. It's okay, Glint, Iris said. You're among friends. This is a safe place. A sharp crack sounded, followed by a thin vertical beam of light that materialized in the center of the bridge. The beam of light widened, and a human figure stepped through. Sparks exploded from the thin beam in a chorus of electric crackles before it disappeared. Wisps of smoke ascended around a skinny teenage boy in a silver jumpsuit. Mousy blonde hair draped over his face like an animal emerging from a pool. The boy stood there shivering for a moment, hugging at his chest for warmth and looking wide-eyed at the ship. His nervous eyes darted about and then froze on me. I drew my trusty demolecularizing termination energy ray, demoter for short, and leveled it at his head. And that is the end of chapter one. Stay tuned and look it up on Amazon. And uh, there's a lot of sample chapters up there too. You can read the first three chapters with their look inside feature. So there you go, the introduction to Space Drifters. <laughs> that is great. Thank you, Paul. All right. You're so welcome. Oh, yes. So as a final thing, uh, let me just give my website. If anyone's interested, uh, you can find me online at www.pauljregner, that's R-E-G-N-I-E-R.com, pauljregner.com. And thank you very much for having me. I had a blast. Is that a space blast? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Always.
a humorous writing from Roger Pond's book, Things That Go Bah in the Night, Tales from a Country Kid. This one's called Pony Sign. One of the privileges of farming and other types of self-employment is the opportunity for a family to work together. The concept of husband and wife, mother and daughter, father and son, toiling side by side is part of the American ideal. It's no bed of roses, however. Family members don't react like other employees, and when spouses share business decisions, one little disagreement can lead to six weeks on the hide-a-bed. That's the way it is at my house, anyway. My wife and I try to make business decisions together, but our philosophies are not always in sync. My wife and I come from two schools of economic thought. Whereas I belong to the Royal Order of Skeptics, Connie has an MBA from the Massachusetts Institute of Blind Faith. Her business philosophy says, if you work hard and do a good job, the money will be there. I tell her that's the belief of poor people around the world. When Connie finds a check in the mail, she thinks of all the bills it will pay. I look at the check and wonder what the bank will charge us to deposit it. A person can attend family business seminars and counseling services to mitigate problems such as these, but there's only so much you can do with a person's innate tendencies. I've tried to overcome my pessimism, but I know there's no use. I think the best way to understand conflicting business philosophies is to recall the story of two young boys at Christmas. One little boy was such a pessimist that his parents always went out of their way to make him happy. His brother, on the other hand, was so optimistic that the parents worried he might not survive in the real world. So one Christmas, Mom and Dad decided to give the boys widely divergent presents in an attempt to influence their personalities. For the little pessimists, they got a fancy electric train with remote control, model train station, and a complete city surrounding the tracks. Then, for the hopelessly optimistic youngster, they got a handful of horse manure and wrapped it in a shoebox. Not your usual present, to be sure, but the parents hoped to discourage the little optimist long enough to get his attention. When the boys opened their presents on Christmas Eve, the pessimist looked at his nice new train set and began to cry something fearful. He said the train would probably jump the track the first time he played with it, that all the shiny paint was sure to chip and scratch at the slightest bump. Nothing his parents could say made him feel any better. Then the optimistic youngster opened his little box of road apples and just squealed with delight. He ran through the house, clapping his hands and shouting, Oh boy, oh boy, this is great. I just know there's a pony around here somewhere. And that's our last tale for this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carey Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. 
Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.